Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And it is Social Justice Week on Stuff Mom Never Told You. And we're going to take social justice in a couple of possibly unexpected directions. And today we're going to focus on this thing, this person, this pejorative, the social justice warrior, and what it is, where the term comes from, and what its use and existence says more about social justice in the digital age. Yeah, here's a tip uh, as to how what an old I am. Um I had no I-, I had no idea. I am familiar with an activist whether online or you know on the streets. Uh I am familiar with people online who sort of police the language and imagery that other people use for good or for bad. Um, you know, and I'm familiar with the idea of like the Internet slacktivist, somebody who just sits online clicking like all day and doesn't actually take part in any, you know, larger social movement. I'm familiar with all these things. I I had no idea that this larger argument about a social justice warrior online uh, being a negative thing was a thing. Well, and it's good for you to know now, Caroline, because some people might consider you and I and our work with stuff I've never told you as social justice warriors because we talk regularly about things like feminism, privilege, intersectionality, and other so-called politically correct topics that some think are really taking all of the fun out of the world. And... I first came across this term and was curious about it and wanted to have an excuse to learn more about it, hence podcast topic. I know. I love our lives. I know. Um, I first ran across it during the dreaded Gamergate kerfuffle online, which I'm not going to take the time to go into. Listeners, if you haven't heard about it, Google it. There is more information than you could ever want. And so, but this was a particular pejorative that was tossed about a lot during Gamergate, particularly to label their arch social justice warrior, Anita Sarkeesian of Feminist Frequency. And very quickly, for those of you not familiar with who Anita Sarkeesian is, we've cited her Feminist Frequency videos a lot on the podcast a few years ago. Her Kickstarter campaign to raise funds for a video series looking at video games through a feminist lens attracted a lot of negative attention from certain gamers who were not very happy with the idea of her doing this, of video games changing, et cetera, et cetera. And fast forward, and I'm covering over, uh, glossing over a lot of details, I realize we have Gamergate and this whole battle on the Internet and I would say offline as well, between the supposed social justice warrior figure and people who are kind of grinding their teeth at what the Internet has done to social justice as an idea. Mm -hmm. So first, let's start with what social justice, no warrior, just social justice is, because it's a really basic concept. Yeah. Um, So it's defined... Uh, by John T. Jost and Aaron C.K. in Social Justice, History, Theory, and Research. And they lay it out uh, by saying that social justice is a state of affairs in which, A, the benefits and burdens in society are dispersed in accordance with some allocation principle or set of principles, B, procedures, norms, and rules that govern political and other forms of decision-making preserve the basic rights, liberties, and entitlements of individuals and groups and see human beings are treated with dignity and respect not only by authorities but also by other relevant social actors including fellow citizens and so really it kind of social justice goes above and beyond just saying hey you know women and men should have equal opportunities or you know black people should have the same opportunities as white people um it's it's deeper than that and bigger than that in that you should have every opportunity to live the same kind of life with the same kind of liberty and other basic human rights not just american civil rights as everyone else yeah and it's really investigating 
systems and institutions and how those kinds of systems that are in place can often breed inequality in myriad ways. And the concept of justice has been a foundation of Western society. And in the 1840s, Jesuit philosopher Luigi Taprelli coined social justice and associated it with the teachings of St. Thomas Aquinas. And so for a long time, it was largely a religious term and was actually integrated into Catholic doctrine, for instance. But then in 1971, John Rawls's A Theory of Justice kind of brought social justice into the secular mainstream of academia or the academic mainstream, I could also say, in another way. Yeah, uh, it basically it revolves around the idea that every person has equal rights to the most extensive basic liberty. And it really revolves around uh, what he calls a realistically utopian social contract. Basically, that we should follow certain rules for the betterment of everyone, that it's about the protection of equal access to liberties, rights and opportunities. In addition, and this is key also to taking care of the least advantaged members of society, those who lack those primary goods, not fancy pants, for instance, as like products, goods. We mean those primary goods that ensure that people are free and equal and able to live a complete life. And the Internet and social media more specifically have been incredibly powerful tools for the advancement of social justice today. Now, critics would say that, oh, all your hashtags and Tumblr reblogs amount to nothing in the day to day. But as we're going to talk about in more detail in the second half of the podcast, there are some very real world impacts of digital social justice activism. And Gene Denby, writing over at Politico, has pointed out how social justice today in the digital age, notably, isn't so much organized anymore around a central historically male leader like a Martin Luther King, for instance. And Denby writes, quote, the younger activists are instead inclined to what Jackson called the Fannie Lou Hamer Ella Baker model, an approach that embraces grassroots and in which agency is widely diffused. So we're kind of I mean, we're sort of owning this on a more individual level. Right. And of course, Fannie Lou Hamer and Ella Baker were very famous civil rights activists. And Ella Baker very famously kind of threw up her hands with the whole cult of personality around Martin Luther King and said, listen, this is not what I signed up for. This is not what this movement should be. And one of the examples that's given in this Politico story that uh, I had remembered from news coverage months ago was the example of Ferguson, Missouri protesters, essentially telling Al Sharpton to sit down and shut up, saying, we don't need you being the old man leading the movement. We are young people. We have a voice. We can be activists and uh, protest for our rights just as well as, as you can. And a lot of those very literal feet on the street were initially organized largely through things like Twitter. And again, we're going to talk about this in more detail, and I don't want to get ahead of myself. So... Let's now talk about what the social justice warrior is, because to me, this is just a really fascinating example of where we are with this whole thing, because according to the the esteemed resource UrbanDictionary.com, <laughs> as well as the most excellent resource, and I'm not being sarcastic, know your meme, a social justice warrior is, quote, a pejorative term for an individual who repeatedly and vehemently engages in arguments on social justice on the Internet, often in a shallow or not well thought out way for the purpose of raising their own personal reputation. And they thrive on sites historically like LiveJournal and today very much so on Tumblr, which is part of why. Personally, I love Tumblr. I love just its its earnestness, which can absolutely go awry, as we will discuss. But friends, listeners, countrymen, if you want to see some examples of this social justice warrior e thing in quotes, just head on over to Tumblr. Spend some time. Go to the go to stuffmomnevertoldyou.tumblr.com. You'll yeah. you'll find your way. Yeah. Um, and I mean, an example of this 
would be someone in this stereotype of the social justice warrior being a negative. Um, this is someone who maybe isn't super hyper well educated on a topic, a social topic, but takes up the mantle, takes up the pitchfork and uh, the torch and leads this fight for, you know, what they perceive to be the betterment of society, but maybe not with the deep understanding of a topic that they should have. Well, and it's the assumption, too, that they exist only online. They're kind of the ultimate slacktivist because not only are they perceived to just be clicking their way to fighting for social justice and not actually doing anything, they are also assumed to be even worse informed. Kind of. But again, this is also I mean, this is meant to be an insult. Right. So the whole thing is just soaked in snark. And and part of that negative stereotype about them being online slacktivists is that not only are they not well informed, according to the stereotype, but that they also pass on unreliable information while sort of uh, preaching at strangers on the Internet. Yeah. So one rather colorful example of this behavior from Urban Dictionary is that, quote, a social justice warrior reads an essay about a form of internal misogyny where women and girls insult stereotypical feminine activities and characteristics in order to boost themselves over other women. The social justice warrior absorbs this and later complains in response to a Huffington Post article about a 10-year-old feminist letter because the 10-year-old called the color pink prissy. So, and I mean, that that, I think... Ultimately, at least in that example, it gets to this uh, this bothersome level of what some would think of as just nitpicking, pointless nitpicking. And in term in terms of timeline, uh, it really cropped up or seemed to crop up in the mid 2000s among the activist live journal community members. Um, but it also popped up in a lot of online fan communities. For example, there was concern uh, voiced about ableism, which was reflected in uh, the My Little Pony character Derpy Hooves. And in addition to that, the phrase check your privilege, for instance, is very triggering for a lot of non-social justice warrior types. I mean, it's it's all of these kinds of check your privilege also is a phrase associated commonly with the social justice warrior type that also ruffles a lot of people's feathers to the point that there are now social justice warrior troll blogs and run of the mill trolls who have emerged because the Internet. But now let's introduce the social justice warriors, media friendlier and slightly less pejorative cousin slacktivism. Yeah. So according to the Oxford Dictionary, slacktivism is actions performed via the Internet in support of a political or social cause, but regarded as requiring little time or involvement. For example, signing an online petition or joining a campaign group on a social media website. There's also examples where, like, you know, a natural disaster strikes and you can text something to the Red Cross and it automatically donates 99 cents or whatever. It's like, oh, the, the stereotype being or the assumption being like, oh, good, you didn't even bother to read anything or learn anything or actually go help anyone. You just texted someone. Now, the Oxford English Dictionary definition mentions a social media website, and we've already mentioned Tumblr because slacktivism and Tumblr go together like peanut butter and jelly, really. Mm. And there have been articles about this, about Tumblr and its uh, its purpose now in a lot of ways as being this platform for online social justice. Uh, there are trend pieces at the New York Times and Forbes magazine that we read and Tumblr, just in case you didn't know, is massive. I mean, there are over 215 million blogs. It's one of the 30 most visited sites online. People spend 24 billion minutes per month on it, which isn't terribly surprising. Um, I, I spend too many minutes per month on I Tumblr. I love it. It's great. I, I have to make myself stop. I mean, the gifts, Caroline, they have all the gifts. So many gifts. Well, and we might love it, too, because it's really a millennial hub. Oh, great. I mean, it's made by and for millennials because 50% of users are between 15 and 34 years old. And importantly, 
64% of Tumblr users say they care about social causes and look into them on Tumblr. And this detail was really funny to me. Um, I think it was in the New York Times article. They noted that the 2012 Mitt Romney gaffe about binders full of women mm-hmm. was apparently a tipping point for Tumblr activism because there were tumblers set up and all of the gifts shared and all sorts of mm-hmm. hilarious related memes created and shared on Tumblr. And I mean, I think that's great when you look at it from that perspective as far as like, we are not going to let these idiot politicians of whatever party get away with saying stupid stuff. And yes, do things go overboard frequently? Pretty much every every one of those 24 billion minutes, someone is going overboard with something. But, I mean, I like that idea that you're not letting people get away with the stupid, typical politician stuff. Well, and people take it very seriously. Speaking to the New York Times, Philip Howard, who is the principal investigator at the Digital Activism Research Project at the University of Washington, said, quote, Tumblr is kind of like a gateway drug for activism. Once you connect to other people who feel strongly about race or crime or gay marriage, you stay engaged on that one issue area. And similarly, Tila Wolf, writing over at the Huffington Post, praises Tumblr and even the loathed social justice warrior type for accountability. Yeah, not only accountability, but also incorporating intersectionality. She says that it's not rare to see a lesbian blog take on racial justice in one post and dating advice in another. They celebrate each other often and they defend each other in a way that almost no other platform can do by policing trolls when they infiltrate the bubble. And what kind of groups and communities are these millennial digital activists advocating for? I mean, they're really focused on social justice and discrimination of all stripes, racial equality, police brutality, immigration reforms, the school to prison pipeline, LGBTQ rights, education inequality, and of course, feminism. Feminism. So much feminism. So many Amy Poehler gifts. Uh Love it. Um, but, you know, this online activism also comes with a backlash. And the backlash itself can sometimes be more virulent from social justice warriors themselves. We've experienced this before. Mm-hmm. I mean, once you dip your toe into this kind of online activism or simply talking about things like feminism, equality, uh, racial injustice, etc., you do open yourself up to being called out for not doing it correctly. Right, exactly. The whole idea of the bad feminist in our case, for instance, about, you know, okay, well, you have adopted the title of feminist and the identity of feminist. And so we are holding you to that. And I mean, as well as you should. However, what comes along with that, whether it's feminism or, or crime and prison reform or whatever, um, you know, people are people and they're imperfect. And so sometimes there can be a huge, uh, to use your word kerfuffle, which I also love, uh, there can be a huge kerfuffle if somebody missteps. Yeah. And it can be really challenging to recover from that, too. So, for instance... Lacey Green, who is a sex vlogger, uh, she has a fantastic channel on YouTube called Sex Plus. She also hosts MTV's Brawler show on YouTube. Uh, she is an out-and-out feminist. She's sex positive, as <laughs> the name of her channel implies. And she's been around for a while. And a few years ago, she came under massive fire from people who would be assumed to be in her corner for the use, uh, her use of tranny mm-hmm. in a video. And it was a video that she had done a while ago. And she also offered a very sincere apology saying, look, I was young. I didn't know. I'm sorry. I will, you know, I, I would never use this term knowing, um, the, the kind of damage that it can cause. And a, an apology wasn't enough. I mean, there were national stories about Tumblr users sending her death threats of doxing her, which is the the practice of publicly uh, posting someone's whereabouts, where they live. She had to move apartments because she was legitimately afraid for her safety. 
Yeah, and I mean, uh, RuPaul's Drag Race, of all things, has faced similar pressure. Uh, there was this online outcry uh, over a competition on the show that was called Female or She-Male. And I mean, here's the thing. <laughs> um, the reactions aren't wrong. I mean, you know, we we should combat uh, harmful, negative, hurtful language about whatever group of people, you know, fill in the blank here. We should combat negative, awful language. But on the other hand, uh, a lot of these uh, social justice warriors online are getting a negative reputation because what are you doing sending someone death threats? Right. It's It's this question of the level of the mistake, the error versus the level of response. And the social justice warrior insult exists because a lot of times that level of response, sometimes rightfully, but sometimes not so rightfully, as in the case, in my opinion, with the Lacey Green incident, is far greater and far more punitive than it should be because a lot of times these this group of people might end up using hateful language toward another person to combat hateful language that doesn't seem right yeah it's 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 funny not funny funny haha type of funny but it is interesting that the same culture of anonymity that allows you know terrible hateful racist homophobic people to flourish online also allows um, with the click of a mouse, uh, one of these otherwise well-intentioned so-called social justice warriors to say hateful, awful things to other people. Yeah, and that's not to say that people shouldn't get angry oh, sure. at these kinds of things happening, but there is maybe a lot the, the danger with the Internet and social media is just how easy it is to immediately unleash. And I will say in our experience with stuff, I'm never told you we've been doing this for a long time and we appreciate being corrected mm-hmm. when we say the wrong thing. If we make an unintentionally offensive statement, we want to know. And the way to let us know <laughs> is not by telling us we are the worst people in the world, but rather just by saying, hey, by the way, I noticed that you're saying this. Uh, links are also helpful. Here are resources. Here's, you know, th- this might be a better way of phrasing this. For instance, a long time ago now, uh, we use the term transgendered mm-hmm. on the podcast. And that's not an okay term to use. It's transgender, not transgendered, which can be stigmatizing. And someone wrote in so helpfully and gently saying, hey, by the way, I can tell you got a really good intent here, but the delivery a bit off if you could use this word and not this word. And this is the reason why. And it was fantastic, Mm -hmm. you know, and going forward, transgender done easy yeah well i think the key there for whoever it is making the misstep and whoever it is offering the correction i mean the key there is to just remember the humanity of of everyone and that it's good that you're fighting for the humanity of one group but you should remember that there is the humanity of all to take into consideration um and and we're not just saying that because we love kind letters um it is just a helpful reminder about you know, playing on the Internet in general. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just the whole constructive criticism yeah. thing. And yes, to I'm going to make Caroline's point again. Remember the humanity behind the avatars and voices and faces that you see here interact with on the Internet. That's just a good a good human rule of thumb. But pulling back even from Tumblr and broadening this, some people like Jonathan Chait, famously or infamously, depending on your interpretation of the article, at New York Magazine, argue that all of this, this whole social justice warrior thing, perhaps our hyper-focus on feminism, if such a thing could exist, is really just a symptom of what Chait describes as a return of the quote-unquote PC or politically correct culture that is replacing reason with censoriousness and tone policing. And Chait argued in a rather controversial New York Magazine piece that all of our focus on language and equality and social justice in general is having a chilling effect for communication, that that our standards are almost too high at this point. And nothing is fun anymore. Yeah, well, yeah, and and not that people shouldn't have fun or, or whatever, be allowed to make jokes, but, you know, he cites uh, women feminists 
who, you know, it's not just that they're offering lip service, that they are actually active in the feminist community. Women who are saying, you know, like, I'm I'm afraid to say anything because everything that comes out of my mouth is misconstrued or uh, is not doing feminism right. Um, and it's exhausting. And um, so my my personal take on it is that political correctness is vital to uh, learning to accept people who are different from ourselves. We need things uh, like political correctness to a degree because, you know, otherwise children will never grow up learning that uh, other people different from themselves are OK, that it's OK to like and appreciate and respect people who are different from you. Um, and, you know, you need to learn that it's not OK to joke about certain things, that your language can have a big effect and be hurtful. That being said, I think that it can go too far sometimes in terms of what we're talking about today when uh, people are so uh pitchforky and torchy that they won't let their own allies speak. Yeah, I mean, that is that is a big question. And it's an important question that the piece raises of, well, is all of this having a chilling effect on our ability to even have debates and voice opinions in a respectful way? Are we now just so trigger happy, but also so fearful of how trigger happy we are that we are kind of losing authenticity. I mean, I personally took issue with the piece, for instance, when Chait gets a little snarky about microaggressions, which we focused on in our podcast on, quote unquote, exotic women, Mm -hmm. on exoticizing women of color, like saying, oh, you're so exotic. That is an example of a microaggression. These daily tiny slights that just chip away and remind people that they are the other. And here's a white guy saying, oh, your microaggressions are just too PC, blah, blah, blah. Like with that, I just want to say, hey, man, check your privilege. But then what am I doing? I'm being a social justice warrior. But in that case, I don't really mind. Like, I don't I don't know when when people to me. <laughs> And this is also reflective of spending a lot of time on the Stuff I've Never Told You YouTube channel and mm-hmm. just watching the comments and interacting with commenters there because it's a whole different world and it's really fascinating, also disturbing sometimes. People who want nothing to do with your so-called political correctness and, oh, microaggressions or just made-up problems, to me says, no, I think that you just aren't exercising empathy. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a big thing. And I think that that's that's the line that you need to walk uh, in terms of having empathy, no matter who you are or what side of the fence that you fall on on a certain issue. I think you need to exercise or it would be nice if people would exercise empathy. And like we said, remember the humanity of the person talking, because it's the kind of thing where, you know, it's like, OK, well, if people are, are you know, being activists in whatever subculture or group or arena of the world, um, we should support them for it. Yeah. And we could sit here and just kind of keep slogging through this whole social justice warrior question. But I think it might be better served as a transition point to maybe a more important question of, well, can reblogs on Tumblr change the world? Does any of this stuff that we're tweeting about and hashtagging and sharing on Facebook, does it really matter? And the answer is yes and no. And we're going to talk about that when we come right back from a quick break. And now back to the show. Okay, so does retweeting a feminist activist's tweet help anyone? Does reblogging a post about racism help anyone? As Kristen said, yes or no, and we shouldn't necessarily knock it. Over at PBS Media Shift, they were saying that while slacktivists are often maligned, they do play an integral role in raising awareness. A truly powerful agent for change, though, makes a strong commitment to act in whatever manner necessary to achieve the desired result. So... Basically, like, it's great that you're reblogging that thing about the racist thing on the news or, you know, the feminist who's being outspoken. But if you're going to be a true activist about things beyond just the reblogging and the retweeting, maybe 
you know, it's time to leave your house and actually sign a petition or volunteer for something. Yeah, I mean, but but the first step along the way, someone like Liba Rubenstein, who's Tumblr's director of outreach, she would say the first step to doing that is raising the awareness to an issue. So she told Forbes magazine, quote, it doesn't mean that it inherently creates activists just because you reach 150 million people with a YouTube video, but... It helps increase the chances of converting a greater number of those people up that ladder of engagement. And I will say, Caroline, to the loot of our own horn that makes me my heart swell 10,000 times over, we hear and have heard from men and women and girls and boys, not so many boys, but girls, <laughs> about how listening to the podcast, watching the videos, has made them aware of feminism. They identify as feminists because of stuff Mom never told you. It, uh, awareness is the first step. Yeah, and I mean, we have, this is something that we've seen, and I say we meaning, you know, all of us, the general we, that we've seen worldwide playing a role in social movements for a long time. I mean, before we even had Tumblr, before Tumblr was even a twinkle in the eye of the Internet, um, we had text message coordinated protests. Uh, for instance, in 2001, Philippine President Joseph Estrada was ousted thanks to a text campaign that helped force him out of office. Yeah, Clay Skirky wrote all about this in a really detailed article over at Foreign Policy and described Estrada as, quote, the first time that social media had helped force out a national leader. And essentially, Skirky argues that social media and even text messages aren't necessarily going to be the change, obviously, but they've been instrumental as the coordinators of change. And so similarly in 2004, we have another text messaging campaign that comes to the rescue to oust Spanish Prime Minister Jose Maria Aznar. And then in 2009, the Moldova Communist Party lost power after demonstrations coordinated via text message and social media. But not every social media and text message coordinated campaign is a success because there have been failures of attempted social media coordinated revolutions that were then simply met by government crackdowns. Yeah, and Skirky writes, though, that social media have become coordinating tools for nearly all of the world's political movements. I mean, it's not just people uh, in countries with restricted access to the Internet or facing a whole lot of censorship issues. You know, there have been so many recent examples, and, and again, Ferguson is one of them, of people using social media to really sort of galvanize uh, a movement. So Gene Denby at Politico, who we cited earlier, calls all of this, speaking of Ferguson, a new civil rights movement that was first stoked in 2012 by the Trayvon Martin shooting and then later by George Zimmerman's Acquittal. George Zimmerman being the man who shot and killed Trayvon Martin. And Demby writes, quote, this re-energized millennial movement, which will make itself felt all the more in 2015, differs from its half century old civil rights era forebear in a number of important ways. One, it is driven far more by social media and hashtags than marches and open air rallies. So. Going back to that question of can reblogs change the world? Well, in this example, yeah. So consider the recent hashtag Black Lives Matter. This was started by Patricia Kohlers, Opal Tometi, and Alicia Garza. And it went viral. It inspired all sorts of demonstrations and protests. And it's a hashtag that I think will be around for a long time. Um so then when we move up to August 2014 with Michael Brown shooting in Ferguson, Missouri, and later the grand jury decision to not try Darren Wilson, the police officer who shot and killed him, we see the revival of the hashtag Black Lives Matter with die-ins and a Black Friday boycott in November of 2014. And I mean, that's pretty incredible to think that that hashtag, which was created a couple years ago, is still being used now when you think about the nature of the Internet and how ephemeral everything is. One thing is in one day and out the next. Well, I think, you know, it's it's so easy to dismiss, for instance, uh, 
pictures posted on Tumblr of die-ins or, or any of these boycotts or marches or anything, it's very easy to dismiss that as, that's just, you know, dumb millennials, you know, they're not doing anything real or they're not active, being activists in any way that it will be effective. But I think the very important thing about things like this and with Tumblr specifically is that, you know, for so long in our modern media, um, we have only been able to see and interact with the things that the network news has presented to us as worthy of being news. And typically that's just like, you know, what the president said that day or, you know, what your mayor said that day. And Tumblr is sort of a way of presenting an entirely different side to the news and to modern events. Um, it's a way of seeing yourself and your own community and your own interests reflected. And so then when other people see that, even if they are dismissive, they can maybe eventually start to say, like, huh, maybe there's something to this. Well, and to that very point, Tumblr created news not too long ago on March 6th, 2015, with hashtag Blackout Day, which began with a Tumblr user, and then the hashtag ended up trending on Twitter. And it was a grassroots recognition of people of color on social media. And the Tumblr user, Expect the Greatest, was a person who thought this up. And it was such a simple but powerful concept because this user was like, you know what? There are so many white people on my dashboard. I would really love to see more people who look like me. So he said, hey, people of color, on March 6th, post your selfies, reblog images of famous black people, like whomever you respect. Let's flood social media with people who look like us, essentially. Yeah. And it worked. And it went viral. And you have ABC News and all sorts of other national media outlets covering it and then starting conversations among people who aren't on Tumblr. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, what is this blackout day? What does that mean? Yeah. At the very least, that's what you get. At the very least, you get people going, what is that? Is Mm -hmm. that what is this dumb thing? Because at least once they ask the question, they might follow through to find out what it is. And who knows? Maybe they will say, oh, wow, I had no idea. And also, too, when it comes to using social media to influence the news cycle. It's incredible to see from 2012 with the Trayvon Martin shooting, how it took a long time for that to become national news compared to just two years later with Michael Brown shooting. The news of it went out on Twitter from people in Ferguson. Mm-hmm. They're witnessing the entire thing going down. It hit the news cycle almost immediately. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But alongside all of the racial issues that are brought to the forefront, thanks to social media and, you know, so-called social justice warriors on social media sites, you know, we also have issues in and around feminism and using that online and hashtag activism to bring these issues to the forefront. That's right. In our podcast on women on Twitter, we talked about how Mickey Kendall's hashtag solidarity is for white women started an admittedly difficult but necessary conversation about race and feminism and the tendency for white feminists to dominate the mainstream conversations about gender equality to the detriment of the needs and perspectives of women of color. Yeah, and so like it or not, as Tila Wolf noted over at Huffington Post, these people, these people that we refer to as social justice warriors, will keep you on your toes. You might not think that you're being hurtful or harmful, or maybe you are trying to be hurtful or harmful, depending on what the situation is. But it's sort of a community. It it sort of circles the wagons around whatever the community in question is to point at it and say, this is wrong. This is not allowed. Yeah, it will sniff out your heterocentrist, ableist, classist, racist, cis-centric language from a mile away. Yeah, exactly. And so, for instance, uh, in addition to solidarity is for white women, we also got the hashtag, yes, all women in response to the hashtag of not all men, which, of course, itself was in response to a uh, very disturbed individual, Elliot Rogers, misogynistic murder spree. And the effect of that hashtag, Yes, All Women, brought viral attention 
to rape culture. I feel like that that hashtag was so instrumental in bringing a very like <laughs> in group term like rape culture mm-hmm. into broader conversations. And we've also, though, on the flip side of this, talked before about how feminist Twitter can get ugly on itself. We cited, for instance, Jonathan Chait's piece in New York Magazine that quoted a former editor over at Feministing who said, quote, everyone is so scared to speak right now. He also quoted Hannah Rosen, who is the author of The End of Men, who is a feminist, but she has no interest in engaging with feminist Twitter because they will pounce. Yeah, yeah. She basically voiced the same thing that the feministing editor did by saying, you know, it's exhausting and anything I say is going to be misinterpreted by someone and I just don't want to deal with it. Well, in the promotion of her book, I forget the exact uh, promotional hashtag they used, but it was something like the end of the patriarchy. It was something suggesting that there was no more need for feminism. And as you can imagine that rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. Yeah, exactly. Um, Well, if we look at uh, the journal Feminist Media Studies, they devoted part of their issue number two of 2015, Feminism Hashtag and Violence Against Women and Girls, to this whole issue of feminist hashtag and social justice. For instance, um, with their examination of hashtags and raising awareness about violence against women and girls, Susan Barrage and Laura Portwood-Stacer write that the essays in the journal were really there to emphasize the potential of feminist hashtags to expose the pervasiveness of gendered violence, creating a space for women and girls to share their own experiences, and through doing so, challenge common sense understandings of this abuse and promote gendered solidarity. But they go on to say, quote, at the same time, These scholars are sensitive to the potential dangers of these hashtag campaigns in oversimplifying complex issues, as well as the threats of gendered violence that occur within online spaces themselves. So in a nutshell, social media and hashtags and slacktivism, activism, whatever you want to call it, is not going to be the answer. Right. Of course, it's not going to be the answer, but it's a powerful tool. Right. It can be a powerful tool, although uh, Time columnist Sarah Miller did wonder this past Oscar season whether or not some social media activist efforts would just be better spent elsewhere. Yeah, I, I mean, I get Sarah Miller's frustration. Uh, she was talking about the Ask Her More campaign, which was basically an online effort to get... Uh, quote unquote journalists at award shows to ask female celebrities, directors, actresses, whoever, um, ask her more about the work she's done, her, her cares in life, not just like who she's wearing. Um, I, I love the idea of ask her more because I, I'm never going to buy a Givenchy gown, so it's fine. I don't care. Um, but Miller's argument was like, this is ridiculous. Like, we need to be focusing our feminist energies on other things. We don't need to be telling celebrities that they need to describe their vision for world peace in six syllables. Um You know, maybe I just want to watch an award show and let my brain drip out my ears and hear what kind of dress someone's wearing so that that designer can get recognition. And my question is, like, do you really care about the designer and the people who made the dress getting recognition? But it does exemplify the social justice warrior be in a lot of people's bonnets, which is, can you just relax? Yeah. Can you just let the Oscars be the Oscars and let a red carpet be a red carpet and like have women on parade every now and then and stop taking everything so seriously? <laughs> no, I mean, I'm I get those comments a lot oh, on yeah. YouTube. And that is something that I think about because sometimes I do catch myself in my own day to day life getting really stirred up and really emotional and upset about certain things. And so I do wonder sometimes, like, well, maybe maybe I should just relax. But then as soon as I think about relaxing, then it just feels lazy. And (laughs) I remember that there's work to be done. So I don't know. I honestly, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think that we should relax in the sense of, 
relax how quickly we might respond to something. Yeah. And how violently, whether with words or fists, that we respond to something. Or relax how quickly we are to assume that the other person meant harm or that they are willfully ignorant. Or that they are incapable of change. Right. Which is, again, going back to the example of the person who gently corrected our stigmatizing language. Yes, yes. That person had faith that we could and would change. Yeah. And we did. But, you know, we mentioned earlier in the podcast, like way earlier, that um, the whole social justice online slacktivism movement was way more fragmented um, and way more spread out than any other offline movements we've had in history, which typically were led by one charismatic individual, typically a man. And so it's almost like when you're telling... <laughs> When you're telling uh, someone who's an online social justice warrior to shut up and relax, chances are that person is perhaps a woman or a person of color, um, a person who is just different in some way than the norm of a white heterosexual cisgender male. And so I'm not saying that we should always jump to being offended, uh, but I am saying that it is. Perhaps the fact that certain people who have not historically been given the chance to speak uh, is that's freaking people out. <laughs> exactly. I think that's everything. I think that disenfranchised and marginalized groups have platforms and a voice and a reach like never before. And so, of course, there's this term to just dismiss it, to just yeah. with just the the flick of a wrist say no. Well, especially if you yourself, whoever you are. Uh, if you yourself consider yourself to be a liberal minded individual who's accepting and not racist and whatever, if if you say something, not being willfully ignorant, but just saying something and someone corrects you and says, you know, you're wrong, <laughs> you shouldn't say this, you might get offended, especially if you are a white heterosexual cisgender man who is not used to being wrong um, and being corrected. I mean, a lot of people, it's very easy to be sensitive to any type of criticism or critique or correction. Um, and so for a lot of people, they are starting to feel uncomfortable because they are being corrected and things like privilege are being pointed out. Yeah. I mean, and that also applies to cisgender, heterosexual, white, uh, female podcasters. It does too. indeed. We are not, we are not above the fray. No. Well, now I'm really curious for listeners to weigh in on this because if you spend a lot of time on the internet, like we do, Chances are you run across this, but I don't, I don't think that it's just limited to the internet. I think it is reflective of a real world cultural shift that's happening. Yeah. I don't want to call it a culture war, but I think that this, these online conversations, campaigns, activism, slacktivism has, if anything, established awareness and sparked offline conversations. And so. What do we think about all of this? Do you just, you know, flick it away, considering it all just PC nonsense? Or do you think that, yes, this kind of social justice in digital platforms can, in fact, change the world? Let us know your thoughts. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And hey, if you want to utilize your social media power, you can tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. I have a letter here about our Women in Construction episode from a listener who would like to remain anonymous. She says, thank you so much for doing the Women in Construction podcast. I was part of that tiny 2.6% of women in construction, and you did such a great job discussing the realities of being a woman in this industry. I worked in construction management, which means I wasn't always on the construction site, but I still have enough stories to last a lifetime. I have a background in engineering, and you asked if there was any preparation or warning in school about the realities of the industry. I can't speak for every school, but my fairly progressive school definitely did not prepare me for what I was getting into. 
I had the idea that I would feel like Wonder Woman. I'd go in, work hard, break down gender barriers. Wow, was I disappointed. Although I do think I was part of a slow change, the reality is having to bite your tongue more often than not because you run the risk of getting fired. The overall feeling I found in the industry was that there is no problem. They genuinely believe the only reason women aren't in construction is because they don't want to do construction. I even had a hiring manager tell me that women at the company have not faced any sexism at work. Meanwhile, my two female coworkers and I had exchanged all sorts of countless stories. It's hard. There's no question about it. But that being said, there are ways to deal with it and groups for women in the industry to find support and help. I truly hope to see the industry grow and change. Slowly, I know it will. Thanks again for covering this topic and for all of your podcasts. I'm a longtime fan and really love what you do with the show. I've learned so much from you ladies over the years. So I've got a letter here from Mackenzie about our podcast on women in architecture. She writes, first and foremost, I am a huge fan of your podcast. I listen to it every day on my way to work, and that's why I was so excited to see an episode on women in architecture. I'm a 20-year-old architectural technologist living in Vancouver, Canada. Even in my short time in the field, I've experienced the role of sexism in the workplace. My office is 90% male, and out of the three women in the workplace, there's an interior designer and another tech like myself. I've never worked with a registered female architect. Being a young woman in an office full of middle-aged men, I feel like I'm treated differently than my male colleagues of the same age and education. Soon after I started, I was asked to learn the receptionist desk so I would be able to use the phone system if the receptionist had to go out. This slightly agitated me. Were they asking me this because I was a junior or because I was the female junior? I'm on the fence about going back to school to become an architect. I don't think a lot of people know how much commitment it is. In Canada, you need a bachelor degree, which is four years. Then you need a master's, which could be two to three years. And then you need three years of internship hours, which you get paid very poorly. And then there's a series of oral and written exams. So, all in all, that's ten years of schooling you have to commit to. And ten years is if you don't take time off to work in the field for more experience. I think a lot of women go into school thinking they will become architects, but women simply don't finish because life gets in the way. By the time I'm 30, I'd like to be thinking of getting married and having children. That's why I don't think I could commit to being an architect. Another thing I wanted to mention is that not all architects design buildings. A lot of what architecture involves is coordination with different engineers and working with construction managers and contractors. You have to have a very strong personality to solve some of the situations with the more rough-around-the-edges contractors. I could easily see female project architects being harassed more than males on the construction site. As far as design-wise, women have leaned more toward interior design as a career than architecture. People see interior design as a softer, less important job. Women can't build things, but they can decorate! In conclusion, I do think women are making headway in architecture, and it's just about a matter of time before it's even. So thanks, Mackenzie, and thanks to everybody who's written in to us. MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 